You're listening to a podcast of Spurious Morality. And welcome to a podcast of Spurious Morality. I'm Johnston, and with me this week I have Gareth. Hello. Hello there. And um, th- there's been a bit of Doctor Who on telly. Hasn't a little there? bit, yeah. Just a little it bit. Snuck just, in there. Yeah, just kind of, you know, we didn't really <laughs> see it coming. It wasn't really spoiled or advertised. You just, you know, <laughs> it was just there. Um, yes, so we're here today to discuss <laughs> the Star Beast. Uh, the first of three specials to celebrate the 60th anniversary, and uh, it's it, it's bringing back David Tennant and Catherine Tate. And it, it, it's great. It's just so good to see these characters again, and there's a lovely wave of nostalgia that comes with it. Um, yeah, they've neither, not missed a beat. No, absolutely not. It, 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 within <laughs> minutes, it was like, oh, wow, we're... We're exactly where we were 15 years ago, and it's amazing. It just hasn't, uh, and they're so good together, and they always were good together. Um, but before we carry on, uh, I will warn our dear listeners that uh, there will be spoilers ahead. We are going into a spoilerific discussion of the episode, so if you've not seen it yet, press pause, go and watch it, and then come back, obviously. Um, so that's the spoiler bit out of the way. Uh, so let's let's kick off with um, the fact that it's David Tennant and Catherine Tate in Doctor Who, written by Russell T Davis. It's brilliant, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, um, I was. Yeah, I was going to say I, I'm not as nostalgic for series four as I think most people are. But I still really enjoyed it, and I can still recognise how big a deal this is for people. Uh, and yeah, just to see the two of them on screen together, you can tell they've, you know, kept in touch, never lost the old rapport. And I suppose the, you know, the pair of them, the careers have just got bigger and bigger and bigger since since mm. they're in. I mean, you know, they were both sort of on top of the world when they were in Doctor Who. You know, I remember at the time. Well, even Russell T. Davis mm. in the writer's tale, even Russell T. Davis couldn't quite believe that he'd got Catherine Tate for a whole series. Yeah, she was quite a get. That was uh, quite a big deal. Um, and it, it sort of, you know, it did turn into something special. That that series four is pretty much universally beloved. Um, and it, it's, mm. I think that it, it's certainly not my favourite. It's certainly not my favourite of New Who. It's certainly not my favourite of all the Doctor Who. But it's... It's the one I can kind of point at and go, this this was actually 
Doctor Who firing on all cylinders. This was this was peak stuff. Yeah, I think it was. Uh, it's probably fair to say it was sort of peak um, popularity for the show as well. I mean, not like forever. It's not like it never got that big again. But in terms of kind of hype, I mean, just I remember the craziness of um, after the Stolen Earth airs. It looks like the Doctor's, you know, regenerating, and just the absolute lunacy in in on television and everywhere about what was going to happen next. You know, I remember there was a, it might have been Graham Norton, but there was an interview with Catherine Tate and she just happens to be sitting next to James Nesbitt, who's just one of a million actors who they were all just firing out as a possible replacement. And it's just fever pitch. And it's just, you don't just get that. You know, that's that's a show at the height of its powers, really. So the the, the kind of nostalgia in this, I think, works on a couple of levels. And one of them is just, you know, good God, we we were huge. And, you know, we will be again. So that's that's kind of a nice feeling. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just immediately trying to recapture that. And I think from the, mm. you know, the first few minutes after the uh, opening titles, it, it, like I said before, it just immediately felt like I was right back there. I was watching that <laughs> Doctor Who at its popular pinnacle kind of thing. And, yeah, it just immediately kind of snapped into it. Um, and I think that that's, you know, it's obviously a very, very sort of deliberately done, well thought out thing. You know, they are very much going, well, that was brilliant. It was 15 years ago. Let's just go back there. Let's take everybody back mm-hmm. there. And I've heard some people sort of go, well, it's not really celebrating 60 years. It's celebrating one year of those 60 years. But taking it back to certainly a peak in popularity and a creative peak as well. I think, you know, Russell T Davis in that fourth series was absolutely on fire. Um, I think yeah. that that is a good way to celebrate the 60th. I think, you know, going back to, to when the show was at its best, I guess, inverted commas, you know, I'm not saying that series four was mm. the best doctor who ever has been, but it, it's certainly, a notable period of the show's history. Yeah, I th- I think there's something to be said for um you know because like my other half watched it and kind of went to me afterwards. Was that the 60th anniversary episode? And I sort of see that point of view of like it's not really doing anything that you would expect it to for the anniversary. It's kind of a a big um, traditional Russell T Davis episode in many ways. Not you know, it's not the day of the Doctor or anything like that. Um, I think one thing to bear in mind, I think it's fair what you've said, that it's kind of, it's going, here's Doctor Who, it's in fine fettle, isn't that a great thing? So, hooray for that. But also, there are three specials, so I'm kind of hedging my bets a bit and thinking, by the time we get to the giggle, that will probably feel more like... um, a, a sort of overall Doctor Who shindig. I might eat my words. We will see. But um, yeah, I, I struggle to really believe that the Star Beast is kind of presented as there you go, that's your lot. I mean, we know it's not. There's two more episodes to go. But I'm thinking the anniversary-ness is kind of being drip-fed at this stage. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it, it, the main purpose of the Star Beast really was reintroduce 
Donna, introduced Donna's family and uh, all that kind of thing. It was it was very much a Rose, Smith and Jones, Partners in Crime type episode. Um, You know, launching this. I mean, they're calling it three specials. It's essentially a mini series. It's yeah, it's it's three episodes of Doctor Who on consecutive Saturday nights. It's it is a mini series basically, and it's. I think if you look at it from the point of view of a series opener, as opposed to the 60th anniversary special, um, you're you're far more likely to get more out of it. I think. Yeah, it does. It it's sort of pitched a lot like one of. uh... Russell's openers. I mean, Partners in Crime, obviously, Series 4 is a good kind of one to think of because it's Doctor and Donna. And, you know, the comedy in that is just sort of exquisitely pitched. And the plot is kind of a sort of a necessary thing, but it's not the reason you're here. And that's kind of, I think that's even more the case here. It's, uh, you know, fully appreciate it's an adaptation. We'll we'll get into that. But uh, the focus is certainly on the Doctor and Donna. And it's it's like well okay that's the reason we're here, we've got beep the meep but you know that's kind of the B plot as I think it is but but yeah it's 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 all about introducing these characters and we have that uh, strange introduction at the start where the Doctor and Donna are both separately talking to themselves slash um, the camera, which I kind of assume is a Disney Plus thing. Like obviously, we, you know, we saw it on on i on BBC, but I'm assuming it's there because they've kind of thought, right, this is the big launch for Doctor Who for uh, worldwide, and um, they probably haven't seen series four, so I guess they need a bit of a recap. Because if you watch the episode, obviously, they do delve into all of this stuff. You know, they make it very clear what the status quo is with these two characters. Um, so yeah, it was a strange opening scene, but I'm willing to accept it's probably a business decision has been made. Like you know, maybe maybe Disney went, oh, can you give us a leg up, actually? So and a very surprising opening, but you know, eh, that's okay. <laughs> I'll put up with it. Did you, how how did you feel? Did, did it bother you at all? Or uh, yeah, it, it felt a little out of place. It felt very un Doctor Who, um, but. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally see why they did it. They couldn't not do it, and they couldn't just do a previously on Doctor Who and show some clips. It did need the context. It needed the Doctor, and it needed Donna and all that kind of thing. And I suppose really what you have to bear yeah. in mind is there are people that weren't alive when uh, Journey's End was broadcast that will be watching this. That have maybe they been walk among Doctor us. Who for a few years, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, it's you know when I think about it, it it's the gap between um, uh, Journey's End and the Star Beast is actually what was it? Mm. F- was it fourteen years, fifteen years? Um, like I wasn't that old when Doctor Who yeah. came back. I was yeah, was a twelve, I think twelve, thirteen, something like that when. Um, series one aired, so it, it's it it is quite a chunk of time, um, and yeah. yeah, I really do think that it needed just filling in somehow, and you can't rely mm. on everyone will have seen Journey's End and have fond memories of it, and 
all that kind of thing. So a lot of people, this will be the first Doctor Who they see, potentially. Hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right, I think. Yeah. Um, but it it totally did its job. It it wasn't particularly jarring. It wasn't. It didn't sort of take me out of anything. It, you know, I didn't not like it. I just um, yeah. I think it needed to be there, and I'm glad it was there because everyone is automatically caught up in in the space of two minutes. Um, and it was just so good to see them on screen again. Yeah, it's it's tough for you know fogies like us to imagine what it's like for, for younger people who haven't seen the show at all to be just presented with David Tennant and he looks at Catherine Tate and he you know obviously feels a certain way and just think that's a lot of history. So yeah, it's it's um, to to cope with that as well as all the concepts of Doctor Who, which you've got a kind of squirrel in there as well. Um, yeah, yeah, it's fair. <laughs> I'll give it a pass. Yeah, it definitely gets a pass. Um, so let's let's move on to our next point. And obviously, this was uh, an adaptation of a much loved, mm. much loved uh, comic from. It was a very very early comic, wasn't it? I think it was one of the so. first ever Doctor Who comics. Um, and uh, obviously, Big Finish have got their version of the Star Beast that they did in comic adaptations a few years ago. So. It's, I think it's probably arguably the best known Doctor Who comic there is. I think that's a reasonable thing yeah. to say. Um, the fact that I yeah. know about it kind of proves that I'm not a comic guy at all. I couldn't really tell you anything about Doctor Who comics. Um, mm. So it, it, it's kind of like the one area of the Who universe that I've just entirely missed out on. And that's just me, personal preference comic thing, really. But. Um, it's yeah, I think it's fair to say that it's even before obviously it was adapted for TV as this big budget amazing relaunch. Um, it was probably the best known Doctor Who comic, and um, the Meep Beep the Meep has appeared in other big Finnish stuff, I think, and that kind of thing. So it, it's I think it was you know a good one to adapt. It was a good one to pick up. It's a Fairly simple, straightforward story. You know, it's, it's your classic alien looks cute, but it's actually a bad guy type yeah. thing. It's been done before. It was done in Unquiet Dead, you know, third episode of the Russell T. Davis era. Um, so just sort of how how familiar um, are you with previous versions and sort of what are your thoughts on those? Um, and what are your thoughts of this as an adaptation? Well, I'm in a similar boat where I didn't read the comics. So, but again, I had heard of this. So that I think that is the litmus test, really. Um, I think the first reference I came across with Beep the Meep was probably in Doctor Who, the completely useless encyclopedia. I don't know if you ever read that. It's a classic. Um, very funny book. Uh, anyway, it's got Beep the Meep's song in it, which uh, I think ends with Who's Next for the Chop? And I'd be lying if I said I wasn't hoping that would make it into the uh, the episode, but alas. Um, I have heard the Big Finish adaptation, which I enjoyed a lot. Uh, Tom Baker obviously having lots of fun on that one. Um, yeah, so the, the broad strokes of it, uh, as you say, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You know, you've got the thing, it's, uh, it's adorable. Turns out it's a horrible megalomaniac. Um, so I'm not too precious about it. 
I don't mind that they've changed a bunch of stuff. Obviously, it's you know, Fourteenth Doctor and Donna and all of that stuff. I thought the Meep itself was incredible. Uh, that's you know, a lot has been said about this online already, but just as long-term viewers of Doctor Who, looking at a creature like that, just the level of complexity and effort that's gone into that thing. I mean, I was very, you know, Doctor Who Unleashed is is now a thing, and, and I saw that afterwards, and you could see the amount of effort that has to go into it, you know, so you've got a prosthetic, you've got a sort of costume that can be worn and walked around, and you've got additional little CGI bits, and the whole thing just adds up to basically just marvelling at it, just being like, God, God, I mean, this the, this is so great i mean it's you know with doctor who is full of monsters that you really have to take with a, a suspension of disbelief and that's that's fine that's part of the deal of, of being a fan but um yeah good lord it kind of makes you think well what what else are we in for i mean if they can make this look this good um and obviously miriam margulies you know perfect perfect casting uh she actually i believe accidentally announced to the world that she was the meep before um the bbc had done uh, she had her second book published oh miriam and i think it mentions that she's the meep and i think that was the first official confirmation um but yeah yeah you know she's absolutely who you want to kind of straddle the line between adorable funny little voice and a cackling monster yeah, and the the sort of switch between the two is just so brilliantly done, um, like the, the the sort of stones of blood inspired court scene in the car park. Um, I've seen a see, lot. I'd, of people I had kind of talk. mixed feelings about that. Oh, so 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 there we go. What were you saying? I'll, I'll see if I'm I'm copying those people. <laughs> well, a lot of people um, I've sort of you know reading on Twitter and so on have kind of said that um they they did prefer the the original version of the reveal and I do quite like it in Big Finish where you can kind of hear hear the meep's internal monologue and that's kind of when you mm. realise that they're not this cute little fluffy victim. They're actually a very nasty megalomaniac. Um mm. and I, yeah I get that. I think I maybe do prefer that as well actually, but I I like that the Doctor worked it out. And that's one thing that I kind of, um, that does sort of baffle me a little bit about the original. Um, it, it's that the Doctor doesn't work it out till a lot later. And it, it's, I think it's kind of obvious. I don't know, maybe it's just me. It's like, you know, Doctor, you've met many, many, many cute little aliens that have turned out to be villains. This is not a new thing. Maybe you should suspect the meep. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Malcolm Hulk wrote plenty of stories about uh, creatures that might look a certain way but have more complexity than you give them, um, you know, give them credit for. Um, yeah, so the scene, I do appreciate the the thing about the Doctor working it out. That is fun. And obviously the uh, the wig is a nice little nod if you're a if, I actually recently rewatched the stones of blood so that one really jumped out at me um yeah i think the only issue is that it felt like there was probably a bigger execution of that idea at some stage um i've no idea what it would have looked like i mean obviously there's the comic and the audio version where it's more based on 
the internal monologue of the meat, which is very hard to get you know get into a script like this. Um, but yeah, it kind of felt as a piece of drama, like sort of pausing the episode to kind of go. By the way, we've we've sussed that you're a baddie. So I kind of, I don't know. I kind of wanted the Meep to just expose themselves in that way. Um, but yeah, it, it makes me wonder. You know, you see things like this, and you know, you mentioned the writer's tale earlier on. That kind of highlights so many examples just from series four of things that happen on screen that might strike you as a bit odd, and it turns out, well, you know, there was a problem and they had to patch it. And they go, right, okay, I'll have this thing over here answer that thing over there. Um, you know, there was a bit in Partners in Crime where he has to contrive a way to electrocute a couple of guards so that they're going to be out of, the, out of the way of the Doctor and Donna. Um, so I wondered, you know, I thought, is there a, is there a story behind this that we're probably never going to hear of like, oh, well, there was originally a different version of this. And maybe it was always in his head to do it that way. But I don't know. It seemed a little bit static for me. Um, you know, it kind of externalized the reveal about the Meep instead of letting it come from something the Meep had directly done. But if it's a case of trying to hand the agency to the Doctor as opposed to him not having any in that scene, yeah, maybe that drives the decision to do it that way. I suppose also, just on a very basic level, the episode had bigger fish to fry. It had more important oh, absolutely. things to do. It needed to move on. Um, yeah. You know, we could have we could have trotted around the whole Meep isn't a bad guy thing for a. And like I say, it's so obvious. Even if you're going into that <laughs> with no knowledge at all of what was going on, uh, you know, with not knowing either the big finished version or the comic, it's just so obvious mm. that the Meep isn't isn't this cute little alien yeah i just i think that there's no point in dancing around it for so long because the simple fact is you've got an alien that's obviously a bit iffy uh let's just go with it move on and um focus on the more important stuff that the episode had to do which was introducing characters um um sorting the uh, the you know Donna's journey's end situation out and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, yeah. it's again. I've just I've I've not got a problem. It just got it got the episode to where it needed to be in a efficient way. And while I appreciate that to some people it's not going to be the most satisfying thing ever, it does the job. And it's you know I'm glad we got more focus on other stuff instead of that well i do think i you know i very much think that the episode came about uh as a means to pick up the doctor and donna's stuff and russell probably at some point went what would be a nice plot to have here you know just as a kind of means to an end and probably thought well you know nobody's done the star beast that's a laugh uh and yeah it's it's that feeling of um the Russell T Davis series opener and that fits that tone very well. So, so yeah, kind of watching it, uh, especially from that point on the focus is so much on the doctor and Donna and that stuff is great. Obviously we'll get to that, but um, yeah, I would be interested to know how big fans of the original comic uh, kind of felt about it. Cause obviously just on a visual and casting level, 
it's got to be like dream come true territory as far as getting a beat the meep on the screen but in terms of the actual story it's very much the sideshow so i don't know um but it's yeah like i say i've only heard the audio and that was a while ago so i was mostly just enjoying miriam margulies performance really and it was an excellent performance definitely yeah um so next next sort of point of order is uh, something else, actually, that the the wider internet has sort of said may have been done a little bit too quickly or too suddenly. But it's sort of fixing the, uh, the Donna situation, uh, fixing the whole Dr. Donna yeah. thing so that um, she can know who the Doctor is without <clears throat> dying pretty much straight away. Um, Again, I was perfectly happy with it. I, I kind of get that some people have said that, um, you know, well, it, you know, it was it wasn't really dramatic enough, or it, you know, it just kind of happened, um, and it could have been something that could have been dragged across the whole trilogy. And I don't know. I, th- I think I quite like the idea of it being fixed, and now the Doctor and Donna can just have a a normal Doctor Donna adventure. Um, so yeah, I was quite happy with the way it was done. I was, you know, quite happy with the idea that now Donna had had a child, and um, you know, part mm. of the meta crisis had been passed on, and I quite like that. And you know, I think Rose is a great character. I really like the way that uh, she's been incorporated, and it genuinely does feel like Donna has lived a relatively normal and actually quite happy life for the last 15 years because we kind of uh, we left her in a place where we weren't actually sure whether she was going to be happy in her life or not and it, it seems to be that she has been and again the fact that we got just that little insight I thought was quite nice so what did you think are you are you glad that the Donna situation is solved and do you like the way it was solved um it's yes is the short answer but I think you have to sort of make a choice to be okay with it because it was it was quite different at the time or it felt different that um when the the terrible thing happened to Donna in Journey's End that the next time we saw her in the end of time it had stuck and through the course of that episode you're kind of thinking oh they'll they'll be a fiddle they'll sort it out and they don't and they leave it and they let that consequence stand and Doctor Who uh, whether or not this is a bad thing is a completely different conversation, but it has a bit of a habit of uh, wriggling out of consequences sometimes. You know, you've got the uh, the doomsday thing where Rose is kind of tantalising us with, uh, I, I'm dead, I'm going to die, this is how I die. And it turns out that that's totally metaphorical and she's fine. Uh, obviously, you know, it's still bad, etc, etc. So, in a way, it is sad that... Uh, we've kind of gone back on it just because it was a piece of drama and, you know, that was a legitimate way to to end her character arc. It was tragic and, you know, tragedy has value on its own. It's it's not always just a sort of road bump on the way to a happy ending. So all of that, you know, I would understand if people said, I'm annoyed that they didn't just leave it alone. At the same time, uh, it's an anniversary thing. And, you know, quite frankly, it's just, do you want more stories that feature Catherine Tate? And it's just, yeah, <laughs> I mean, she's uh, she's incredible. Donna is a very strong, well-written character. Um, 
David Tennant obviously works superbly with her. It's it's certainly preferable to me to uh, you know, for example, what he used to do after series four, which was just have a one-off companion. I think he did it before series four, um, Voyage of the Damned as well. You know, he'd just go somewhere and have a one-off companion. Um, well, even Donna was a one-off companion originally. It's just exactly true. Yeah, there we go. Yet another one. It's basically after Rose. It was all it was all one-offs. Um, so so yeah, I'm okay with it. Uh, the terms of the actual way it's resolved, I think to an extent, the fact that it was being resolved was kind of enough for me. So it was just like, oh, I don't really care about the, the specifics of this. You know, the, the important thing here is that the writer has decided we're going to resolve it. Like, that's that's the big deal here. And the the actual resolution of it is fairly... I would say techno babbly. I mean, I've only, you know, I watched it last night. I was going to watch it again, but I just couldn't cram it in. So I've kind of forgotten a few little bits. But, um, you know, it's very well executed. The whole, the, the expectation that this will kill Donna and she's choosing to do it anyway. That's, you know, that's an effective dramatic choice. She effectively did sign her own death warrant there. So, you know, you, you sort of have your cake and eat it. Um, with the Metacrisis thing... It's hmm, it's a very big and complicated conversation, so I, I'll just hand wave it, really. But I think the whole Rose thing could be sort of awkwardly misconstrued. So the, the kind of entwining of Rose's identity and a sci-fi thingamy, like the Metacrisis, I don't know if I love that as as an example of representation because i think there's a risk there of saying here is a person of a certain type you know whether it be a trans person non-binary person gay person anything and just saying this is because of a sci-fi thing um and i don't know if 100 percent sure that that's what the episode is even saying but it kind of teetered on that for me so i i don't know i felt like it would be stronger, and it, you know, this is just me as just a random viewer, but it would be stronger if we just let that character be. And they can still be instrumental. You know, the fact that Donna has had a child and, you know, this energy has passed on, that can still be there. But uh, the fact that it seems to directly inform the fact that uh, this character is trans, I don't know. I think it's something that is not as streamlined as it could be in terms of intent. Like, I've absolutely no doubt that Russell, you know, it, we know how pro-trans he is, and that's great. You know, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that he intended this to be positive. But I just think it's, it's one of those examples, because Russell kind of, as a writer, very passionate, but sometimes the messages kind of are a bit open to conversation, shall we say? So sometimes you have characters performing actions that are very negative and it's treated as positive or something like that so i think this is just another example of that really where it's just like the heart is in the right place but i can see this being a point that is debated quite a lot and i don't think there's a you know a clear answer beyond well it means well and like we say i mean your, your reaction is, is is a perfect example you've kind of just seen the positive in it and just gone well you know uh it's great that rose is part of this because she gets to help and that's true 
from a from a screenwriting perspective, you know, she gets to be heroic in that and instrumental. So that's all good. But I thought, yeah, I'd, I'd better be honest and just say that I think it's a little, a little murky the way it's the way it's executed. I certainly agree that it's it it, it is very open to. What I what I suspect is misinterpretation. Yeah. Um, it, it's like like you say, there is absolutely no way that Russell T Davis will have written that with anything but the best intentions. Um, that's that's just beyond doubt completely. Um, and it's yeah. At the end of the day, it, it solved it, it solved the Doctor Donna thing in a way that. TV just wouldn't have touched at all in 2008 or 2010 or whenever we last saw them. Um, and I yeah. quite like that. It's it, wild it, to know. think it's quite recent, isn't it? This well, development. Yeah. It, it's, I, you know, it, it's actually really nice to think that Doctor Who is keeping up with, you know, social attitudes and all this sort of thing. And it, it, it is forward moving, it is forward looking, and it always has been. Um, so yeah. we can certainly I mean, take worth, a positive worth, from that. Yeah, sorry. It's it's worth mentioning as well that there is some tremendously strong stuff in here, uh, representation-wise. You know, so you've got... I love the scenes of Sylvia, and she's just, uh, you know, a, a, a well-meaning grandparent who's just trying her best to get it right and has nothing but love and support for this person, but still wobbles now and again. And I think that's very honest. And uh, I love that Sylvia is this kind of person now because we saw her in such a negative light sometimes in series four and she's really grown. And I love that. Um, yeah. So, so there's, there's stuff in here that's, that's just unimpeachably great. And yeah, hooray for that. And, you know, we've, we've not even touched on uh, Ruth Madley's character. You know, there you go. You've got a really strong, well-written wheelchair user character, prominent front and center, hopefully a recurring character. And, um, yeah, the way they handle that is brilliant. You know, they kind of recognize the fact that she's uh, she's got this. But in one scene where there are stairs are an issue, she says, don't make me the problem. And it's great. You can kind of just engage with it and move on. And that's such a, I don't know, such a just a smart way to deal with things like that. And to not make it everything about a character, just to be like, yeah, it's there. It's part of it, but there's other stuff too. We've certainly come a hell of a long way from something like, I don't know, The Deadly Assassin, which I absolutely love. You know, if I had to pick a favourite Doctor whoever, it would be that one. Um, But the entire cast is white males. (laughs) (laughs) Everything. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's we've come... I mean, I know that was 40 years ago, but, yeah, we've come an incredible... 50 years ago, even... We've come an incredibly long way, and um, that's that's definitely a positive. That's definitely uh, something. Well, it's good. it's it's worth saying that um, you know that wasn't the norm then. So, you know, I, I was watching some uh, some Avengers the other day, uh, the old Honor Blackman episodes, and uh, they had Asian actors in the cast, and I thought that's that's better representation than some some examples of Doctor Who that came a decade plus later. Well, yeah. So these absolutely. things wobble, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, you gotta gotta fight for them, and keep them going. That, is it 
I think it was Stephen Moffat who sort of said that you actively have to go looking to make these changes. They don't just happen by accident. They don't happen with the best of intentions. You genuinely Mm. have to actually go, no, I am casting this person in this role or this type of person in this role, that kind of thing. Um, So it's it's good that that intent is absolutely there and that they are setting out to do precisely that. Yeah, absolutely. Shall we, uh, shall we push on to our next topic of discussion? Oh yeah, please. Which is the new TARDIS. Um, what, what do you think of the new TARDIS? Um, in, well, just the the scale of the thing. I mean, there's there's obviously the moment when uh, all the the lights start flickering. I was pathetically impressed by that. Just I know it's essentially like a disco or something, but it's just the sheer scale of the thing. Um, you know, it's it's. Um, I can't wait to see what else it can do because there's all these little doors that go off to different places. So I want to know what all that's about. Um, and we don't get too good a look at it in action because it doesn't really have time to do that and that's fine yeah i was genuinely i was surprised we saw it i thought they might hold that over until the next one but um yeah you know it's it's definitely uh, a different kind of thing because each you know each tardis has had its own look obviously they've all been quite murky so far um in a, you know not in a not in a uh, don't like to look at that kind of way you know i think the uh the Eccleston Tennant TARDIS has a tremendous kind of warmth to it. Um, so does the Matt Smith one, really. And then it's more of a spooky library in uh, Latter Smith and Capaldi. And then, um, you know, Jodie's one is just a whole different ball game. I mean, that's very organic again. But yeah, with this one, it's so bright and um, just gorgeous, really. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's better that it's brighter because it kind of, in a way, now that I'm thinking about it, it gives me flashbacks to um, certain 80s Doctor Who stories that were, shall we say, not very atmospherically lit. Um, so it's very much like a, a Warriors of the Deep submarine in some way. But um, but no, it's it's so it's exactly what you would sort of want a giant spaceship to look like, you know. Um, like in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know, Arthur Dent gets a couple of goes on a spaceship before he gets to the Heart of Gold. And when he gets to the Heart of Gold, it's this big white gleaming thing. And he's like, now that's now you're talking. So I think very much uh, this is the kind of spaceship you uh, can, well, very comfortably sell to Disney Plus for a start. Just look at that thing, you know? I can definitely see that. And it being... has a ramp. <laughs> yes. I can definitely see there being some kind of a Lego set um, or something along those lines of that console room. It looks very <laughs> designed <laughs> to be, to be marketable. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that's it there. But, you know, when you think about, you know, some of the big Lego sets that that there are, they, you know, they are immensely popular, sort of various Star Wars spaceships and, you know, stuff tied to other franchises. Mm. They are, they're big, they're grand, they're... Yeah, so it I quite like that. I think it needs stuff in it. Like it, it, it's it's very empty, and yeah. I like to think that maybe going forward, the Doctor's just going to acquire certain things to go in the TARDIS. So maybe a bit of artwork here, and it needs a hat stand. We need a hat stand back. 
Well, that's the funny thing. It's so big that it could almost be a slight hindrance, really. Because if he's like, oh, I need to go and get that book, you know, it, Capaldi, that's that's 10 seconds. But now it's like, put the kettle on. But <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you can see in Unleashed that they're still, um, you know, they're still finishing it off, like clearly in the middle of the shoot. So we're probably seeing day one of it being finished. So yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm sure once uh, Shooty takes over, God, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it'll get another makeover in a couple of episodes' time. Yeah, never know. But I, um, yeah, I, I, I really like it as a, a starting point, I guess. But I do mm. think the TARDIS is best when it's just got basically a load of crap in it, um, which is, you know, how it was in An Unearthly Child. And, you know, there was all sorts of antique stuff going on and little bits that went off, like the fault locator that kind of thing yeah one one thing that's it just occurred to me recently is that um there's no i don't think there's a line in there about why it's changed because we know that the doctor's changed and you know historically um just since the new series became a thing ever since matt smith it's been at least new doctor new tardis pretty much i mean i know capaldi kind of inherited one it was his TARDIS, really. But he did um, decorate it and change the lighting. He did. Bookcases, exactly. Um, but yeah, there was no there was no line, which which won't bother, you know, your, your Disney Plus newbies. But uh, as, a, as a fogey, I was kind of like, I don't know why it's done that. But, you know, I'm, maybe it's in... Um, there's that comic, isn't there, in Doctor Who magazine, uh, Liberation of the Daleks, which... I've yet to finish. I do have them all. Um, maybe there's a line in there to be like, oh, the TARDIS fancies a change as well. Because normally it's like, oh, it's blowing up or something. But uh, hey-ho. I can live without it, but I, I would like to know if it's not just, oh, the Doctor transformed, so I guess I will too. But we know they're a bit symbiotic, so maybe that's it. Yeah, it's maybe it'll get explained as we go on. You know, we are, as we've said, only the first episode into three. There's there's still stuff going forward, and mm. um, obviously, from the ending of this episode, the TARDIS is going to be involved in some capacity in the next one. <laughs> um, so so yeah, we'll uh, we'll see where it goes. Um, but yeah, it, I I like it. It it's sort of a nice. Let's face it, it's what the classic series would, would have done with the TARDIS had it had the money, I think. Yes, I think there's a few things in this episode that are, um, it was always supposed to be this good. But, yeah. You know. I, mean, I, I, I honestly, up until this point, I don't think the Meep could have been particularly well done at all on screen. I think it's actually no. required getting to this point to actually. Uh, sort of satisfying satisfactorily execute um yeah i mean you even think about series four i mean you think the adipose looked amazing but for what they are which is effectively you know squishy toys yeah you think something like that with fur mm, no i don't think they could have done it yeah uh, absolutely it would have but to be yeah. a prosthetic of some kind but yeah it'd be a totally different ball game yeah definitely well, we've uh, we've got this new TARDIS anyway, and like I say, I like it. It, it it's it definitely mm. reminds me of sort of the original David Tennant's original TARDIS. It's definitely got hints of 
sort of the uh, classic TARDIS in there as well, the white and the roundels and yeah. the disco lights and all that <laughs> sort of thing. And, you know, the lights change colour. There is, there's room for different lighting to be used in there. And um, it, yeah. I, I don't it think be it will just be... Don't think it will just be overlit warriors of the deep all the way through. <laughs> yeah, um, they can do what they want. That's that's the impressive thing, really. You can, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, God, this is an this is an old person thing to say, but they've got a real control of the lighting on that set, so they can sort of do whatever they like. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, so just before we sign off, then overall thoughts on the Star Beast. What? What, what was your sort of uh, takeaway from it? I think it was a very strong um, Russell T. Davis series opener. Uh, the Doctor and Donna stuff was fantastic. I mean, we've, we've barely even touched on David Tennant. Uh, you know, he found a lot of subtle ways to kind of keep the performance fresh. It did not, you know, at the same time, it felt like his level of energy had just rolled off of series four. But he's a tremendously thoughtful actor. So there was a lot of stuff in there where you could see he was going, how can I make this feel like the character has uh, has lived on? And there have been intervening years. Um, I thought the Meep stuff was perhaps not as, uh, not as strong as it could have been, but I think that was a conscious choice just because of the focus of the story. Um, I had a good time with it. I thought it was a lot of fun. And one thing I do want to squeeze in as well is just I really like the Sonic Screwdriver. I'm I'm an absolute terrible moaner for the sonic screwdriver being uh, a convenience which is, is all it is i know that but in this one it's got a kind of 3d screen readout which it's one of those things where i've never had a problem pretending that the doctor can read stuff on the sonic screwdriver but obviously he can't right <laughs> so like that was just kind of matt smith and david Tennant putting some effort in but the idea that you can have a screen like that is one of those things that is just We've got the budget now, so let's do it. So I had no problem with that at all. And when he does that thing with those screens um, that kind of stop gunfire, I have no problem with that either because it's two, th two things, really. It's a passive resistance, so he's using it in a way that can sort of, you know, pause a, a situation, which is exactly the sort of thing you want the Doctor to do, really. But also, it's not perfect. It doesn't get him out of every situation because if they keep shooting, they'll break the thing. So, yeah, it's it's just yeah. Hats off. I'm totally okay with it so far. We're we're waiting until it starts, uh, you know, raising the dead or whatever. But um, yeah, I was really happy with that little development. I thought that was a that was a case of you've got the money, treat yourself. I also like to think that when um, sort of the uh, Tennant and Smith eras get the collection Blu-ray treatment, they can additional CGI that little. Sonic screen. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, that's um, a good idea. That's that that can be part of the updated CGI effects. Hmm. Uh, as and when. So, so um, what about you overall? I, I I thought it was great. It, like you say, it, it's it, it's a Russell T Davis season opener. Um, it, it, yes, it's a special, and yes, it's a you know one of three stories, and I think that. Maybe it'd have been better if it was a series of six, eight, ten, twelve, thirteen, whatever episodes. But um, 
yeah, I thought it, it, what it set out to do, I think it did really well. And what we've got now is the Doctor and Donna able to just have a couple of adventures and just basically enjoy, well, let us enjoy ourselves in this new mini era that's more than a little nostalgic for 15 years ago. And it's just something <laughs> that we can kind of celebrate um, as as part of the 60th anniversary. And yeah, I think it's great. I think it's... Uh, it was just it's just good to have a, a Russell T. Davis Doctor Who episode again. It, it's just great to have it. It's great yeah. to have Donna. It's you know, we've got the fourteenth Doctor Who is like you say, a lot like the tenth, but just little quirks, little differences, and I I like the way that that's kind of played out. Um so yeah, it, it's if if this is kind of what we've got to look forward to over the next couple of weeks, if if this is the standard, then I'm more than happy with it. And I'm looking forward to coming back next week and talking about Wild Blue Yonder and week after to talk about the giggle. I think it's going to be a nice, oh, yeah. nice few weeks to be a Doctor Who fan. I think it's only going to get more interesting for the next two episodes. But I don't know anything else, but that's where yes. I'm at. I think yes. it's going to get very interesting next week. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to uh, finding out who the Meep's boss is, even though we probably know already. Um, oh, I don't know. I think there's there's people yeah. out there hoping for the Ronnie. Fingers crossed. Good well, luck, guys. It. Is it is it just going to be the Celestial Toy Maker, or is it going to be the Ronnie played by Paul McGann, which has been consistently rumored since <laughs> 2005? Let's face it. <laughs> He'd smash it. Oh yeah, totally. Um, but uh, we'll leave it there then. We'll leave it there for now and we will come back Ooh. next week to discuss Wild Blue Yonder and maybe the Star Beast a little bit more because obviously having another episode of this new era will just lend it a bit more context, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Good plan. <clears throat> yeah, so thank you very much for joining me, Gareth. It's been lovely chatting about the Star Beast with you. Thank you for having me. It's been um, fun. We will be back for more spodcasting very soon. Goodbye now. Sarah.